Welcome to Disrupting Japan. Straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. Now, once again, I've got a special show for you today. There will be no guests, no beer, no playful banter with someone speaking English as a second language. Today, it's just you and me. You know, it's been a while since I've done one of these one on one episodes. Way too long, really. I, I truly enjoy doing them, and they tend to be my most popular episodes. But man, they take a lot of time to write and to put together. This episode in particular, I had to rewrite completely two or three times to make sure you'd really understand what I'm trying to explain. Because by the end of this episode, you and I will definitely be in some new and uncertain territory. And I, for one, love being in new and uncertain territory. By the time we're done, you'll have a solid idea of where Japan's next dozen unicorn startups will be coming from. But first, I want to tell you what inspired me to create this episode for you. In fact, it was kind of a strange situation. I mean, twice a month, we sit down and we talk about innovation in Japan. I'm privileged to talk with and to introduce you to some of the most interesting founders and innovators in Japan. I spend a lot of time talking, writing, and thinking about how the startup ecosystem is changing. But you know, I think I missed something, something important. And I think the reason I might have missed it was because I watched these things so closely that when. Well, let's back up a little bit so all of this will make sense. Actually, it was my friend Alan Miner who first pointed out this change. And for those of you who don't know him, Alan was one of Japan's first modern VCs, and he also brought both Salesforce and Oracle to Japan. And by the way, If you haven't listened to the Disrupting Japan episode where Alan tells the story of Oracle's market entry into Japan, you really need to go back and listen. Someday business schools will make a proper case study from that story, but until then, it's a Disrupting Japan exclusive. It's a story of fake it till you make it on a multi billion dollar scale. The plot involves intrigue, secret dealings, and rock concerts. What more could you possibly want? Go and listen to it right now. I'll wait. Okay, so did you listen to the episode? No, of course you didn't. Nobody ever does. It's, it's a silly conceit, really. I don't know why we podcasters keep using it. We should stop. Anyway, give Alan's interview a listen when you get the chance. Now, back to our story. For the past eight years, the Japan Society of Northern California. Has given out annual innovation awards to startups in both Japan and the U.S. They're a really worthwhile organization, and they've been around for more than a hundred years. I'm on the advisory committee for the awards, and last month in Tokyo, I attended the awards ceremony for the Japanese startups. The winners, by the way, were Mujin, Soracom, and Cloudian. Ken, the founder of Soracom, was on the show last year. And you'll be hearing from the other two founders on the show sometime very soon. 
So Alan was making an informal speech at the awards, and he made an observation that made me question if I'd missed something big in Japan's startup ecosystem. He mentioned that for the past seven years, there had always been a gap, a significant gap, between the quality of the Japanese startups who won the awards and their U.S. counterparts. The American startups had always seemed to have expanded faster, to have more real-world deployments, and to be frank, the U.S. startups just seemed more innovative than the Japanese were. But this year was different. The three startups that won the awards this year could stand up with any Silicon Valley startup of the same age and industry. And he was right. I'm always talking about how fast the startup ecosystem is improving and how the quality of both founders and startups is rapidly approaching that of what we see in America. But what if it's already happened and I missed it? Disrupting Japan has always been about bringing you the best and most interesting things that Japan's startup landscape has to offer. But is it possible I've missed the forest by focusing too much on the individual trees? Well, in these one-on-one -on -one episodes, I usually go deep on a specific topic that I think is very important, but little understood. But today, we're going to kind of do the opposite. We're going to go wide. We're going to take a step back and take inventory of the entire startup ecosystem and see where we really stand. We'll take a look at what's working, what's truly exceptional, and what's still lacking. We'll look into the state of fundraising and financing, the changing social attitudes towards startups, the true state of innovation in Japan, and we'll wrap up by talking about Japan's future unicorn farm and where exactly the second era of Japanese innovation is going to come from. So first, let's talk about fundraising and the availability of capital. There's plenty of risk capital in Japan, and by all measures, the amount is increasing. Japanese venture firms raised more than $2.5 billion in 2017, which is more than a 400% increase from 2012. But numbers don't tell the whole story. Sure, everyone likes numbers because they seem objective, and it's easy to think that you understand what they mean. But let's look at what these numbers really tell us about Japan's startup ecosystem. The biggest effect of this increasing funding is that it's made the founders a lot more confident and aggressive, and a lot less stressed out. Years ago, when I began asking founders why and how they started their companies, most had stories about how they had to convince their wives or their parents or their parents' wives to let them start a startup. Most founders had people begging them not to do it, and some even lost friendships over the decision. A decade or longer ago, when financing was hard and valuations were low, most founders had to scrimp to deprive themselves of basic necessities. One founder, Kanemoto-san of OK Wave, came on the show and explained that he was actually homeless when he was bootstrapping his company. Another told me how he had to secretly use his wife's jewelry as collateral for a loan to get the money he needed to keep his company going. And by the way, he also told me emphatically, Tim, Tim, your startup is important. 
but there are some things that you should just never do. This just doesn't happen anymore. Newer founders rarely have a dramatic origin story. I mean, sure, just like the founders all over the world, they work hard, and they're happy to talk about their passion and their vision and their challenges, but newer founders also tend to receive social support. Family, friends, and even co-workers encourage their efforts today. I've actually had a number of founders tell me, well, I had two VCs who wanted to give me money, and my friends and parents thought it was a good idea, so why not? And that's awesome. Over the past decade, starting a company in Japan has gone from, am I really willing to bet my entire future on this? To, hey, why not? What's the downside? And that's the way it should be. When you're not worried about your next meal, when you're not in a constant panic about making payroll next month, when you're not worried about gangsters trying to collect a loan secured by your wife's jewelry, you're going to dream bigger. You're going to double down and roll the dice again, rather than to protect what gains you might have already made. And that's exactly what we're seeing in Japan. From dozens of newly minted founders who are explaining how they're going to disrupt their industry, to iSpace, who just raised over $90 million to commercialize the moon. Japan's startups are finally dreaming big. On the VC side, however, while the progress has been impressive, the transformation is, shall we say, less complete. VCs everywhere in the world are basically skittish and risk-averse creatures. They're herd animals by nature. Oh, they like to see themselves as hunters, as, as lions scouring the startup savanna for stray unicorns. But in truth, they have more in common with the jittery gazelles. We see the same dynamic in Japan, but it's a bit more pronounced. Japanese VCs are very willing to invest in proven startup business models with clear metrics. If you have a B2B SaaS startup or a mobile marketplace with promising metrics, you will get funded. If your idea is a little more innovative, but you have a good pedigree, you come from the University of Tokyo or a top-tier investment bank, you'll also get funded. And if you're a little more off the beaten path, well, you'll have to work a lot harder and raise money at lower valuations. But the money's there. There is another odd effect that is a result of both the herd nature of Japanese VCs and the fact that there are still relatively few deals. When a startup becomes a hot startup, whether because they've proven themselves with rapidly growing revenues or because they have a great technology story, everyone wants in on the deal. And valuations can get kind of crazy. But hey, this is hardly unique to Japan. And we have a long way to go before we're anywhere near the nosebleed valuations we've seen for companies like Uber. Besides, 15 years ago, these companies wouldn't get funded at all, or they would be funded at much lower valuations than they deserve. Well, what about the startups that are not Uber for X or Airbnb for Y? What about the companies that have genuinely new and innovative business models? Well, they exist here, 
and they do get funded, but more slowly and at lower valuations. And frankly, I think these non-mainstream startups represent a fantastic opportunity for both angels and VCs who are more independent-minded and contrarian. Okay. Second, let's talk about how the social attitudes towards startups are changing. We talked about this a bit already, in how founders are finding their friends and family more supportive, but is that really representative of Japan as a whole? The whole idea of a startup is a pretty new part of the general Japanese consciousness. In fact, the first time most Japanese had ever heard of startups was when the movie The Social Network was released here in 2011. No kidding, that was the real beginning of widespread cultural awareness of startups in Japan. Of course, founders quickly found out that they had to adjust their expectations. Startup life is not quite that glamorous, and business deals are not closed while you're in techno clubs surrounded by underwear models. At least, the business deals I'm involved with aren't. But maybe I'm just not in the right deals. But things have changed. In the early days, there was a glorification and an annoying idolization of all things Silicon Valley. Young Japanese who'd spent a few years hanging out in San Francisco were suddenly experts in innovation. They were being invited to speak on the subject and getting lucrative consulting contracts. Even small-time entrepreneurs and investors touching down in Japan from Silicon Valley were sought after. They were listened to. They were honored. People hung on their every word. Five years ago, there was a steady trickle of well-meaning U.S. founders coming to Japan to show the Japanese how it was done, and they were welcomed with open arms. Man, how things change. Of course, Silicon Valley still has a cachet. Other things being equal, a founder or programmer from San Francisco will be taken a lot more seriously than one from Sapporo. And they should be. I mean, at least until they start talking and you can judge for yourself. The new arrivals from San Francisco, however, are finding things a lot harder than those who arrived five years ago. Don't get me wrong. Japan's startup ecosystem is very welcoming, and foreigners are playing a very large role in all parts of it. It's just that this seems to be how Japan, as a nation, learns new skills. Whether we look at the Meiji Restoration or the post-war reconstruction, Japan goes through a phase of learning everything, and I mean everything possible from the West. Once it has absorbed its fill, the focus becomes on refining and improving what's been learned. I think Japan is now entering this phase with startups. For years, I've played a little game at startup events in Japan. I'll count the number of times speakers mention San Francisco or Silicon Valley, and then I'll compare it to the number of times speakers mention Tokyo or Japan. Mentions of San Francisco used to consistently outnumber mentions of Japan by three to one. But this is changing recently. Startup events today talk more about Japan. And interestingly enough, the more knowledgeable the speaker, the less Silicon Valley tends to get mentioned. And that's how it should be. 
But what about the attitudes of society as a whole? Well, between the greater social acceptance of startups and the larger funding rounds, many young startup founders are now recruiting senior managers from Japanese enterprises to work for them. Fifteen years ago, leaving a prestigious job to go work for someone 25 years your junior would have been unthinkable. But it's happening more and more. A few months ago, Kiguchi-san from Enichange explained that this kind of recruitment was a core part of his competitive advantage. In fact, Japanese enterprise is embracing startups and startup innovation. We have a long way to go before Japanese enterprises are as comfortable working with startups as their U.S. counterparts. But the change is happening in a very Japanese way. I've talked about some of the things going on at TEPCO, and also things like Mitsui's support for their alumni network, the growing list of ex-Mitsui employees who've gone on to found or join startups. Now, if the Social Network movie started the change of attitudes regarding startups among the general population, I have to give the Abe administration a lot of credit for changing the attitude towards startups among Japanese enterprises and universities. It wasn't any particular program or grant or tax incentive. It was mostly just having senior politicians and government officials, as well as Prime Minister Abe himself, standing up and saying things like, startups are the key to revitalizing the economy, startups are the future of Japan. That's a very powerful spotlight. It made Japan Inc. stop and say, hey, maybe we'd better look into this startup thing. And man, have things changed. Twenty years ago when I started my first company, any time I tried to land an enterprise as a customer, I was pushed down through three levels of subcontractors. Today, I don't know of a single large Japanese company that is not making deliberate efforts to reach out and work with startups. That's the good news. The bad news is that these companies are still not very good at dealing with startups. It's improving. But so much of enterprise interaction with startups is nibbling at the edges. They are making exceptions to their preferred vendor list and procurement rules rather than rewriting those rules. And I guess that leaves me with the one thing the government can do now that will really help. The promotions and the awards are great, and the grants are always appreciated. But the Japanese government needs to start buying from startups. Of course, it doesn't make sense to put startups in charge of large systems or projects. But Japan needs something like America's DARPA. DARPA challenges are open contests to solve specific problems, and they're open to everyone, from General Electric to two guys working out of their garage. And these kind of programs have been responsible for a lot of early internet technology and most recent advances in American robotics. We need something like this in Japan. Rather than agreeing on the solution beforehand, the government would have to admit they have a problem and don't know what the solution is. If this sounds un-Japanese, I should point out that TEPCO has been running a program like this for a few years with really positive results. But a government program could be much larger, much broader, and much more long-term. 
So, Abi-san, if you're listening, or if、uh, any Disrupting Japan listeners happen to know him, you might want to mention this next time you bump into him. Let's make a Japanese version of DARPA. Okay. Third, let's talk about the overall quality of startups and innovation in Japan. I mean, that was the topic that inspired and kicked off this whole show. Now, I can tell you without question that the quality of startups I see everywhere from Startup Weekend to pitch events to press releases, the quality and competitiveness is going up. Even the steady stream of email questions I get from fans of the show have become more complex and subtle over the last five years. But these are very soft and subjective measures. Is there something more objective we can look at? Can we find a more quantitative measure of quality? Well, let's start with the most obvious one. The one criteria that is brought up almost every time Japan's level of innovation is discussed. The challenge that is put to me almost every time I try to explain the state of Japanese innovation to an international audience. People ask, how come we haven't seen a Japanese Facebook, or a Japanese Google, or a Japanese Uber? Where are the world changing companies? Where are the unicorns? First, I should point out that at the time of this podcast, Japan has two startup unicorns, Mercari and Preferred Networks. Second, and far more importantly, fuck unicorns. Seriously, I am so thoroughly nauseated by this pervasive, perverse praise for this utterly bland, boring, mythological misfit. Let's face it. Unicorns have neither agency nor ambition and are perfectly happy to prance and preen while the sun is shining but disappear when there is real work to be done. Their smug narcissism and pretentious aloofness barely conceal the fact that these vacuous, rainbow pooping, four legged narwhals lack even the simple self awareness to grasp that within the full fantasy bestiary they are little more than second rate pegasi with a disturbing obsession with virgins that only thinly veils their deep seated insecurity with their own horsehood. In fact, the very image of a unicorn as a frivolity unbecoming the extraordinary efforts involved in scaling a startup to a successful enterprise. And unicorns are far more appropriate adorning the posters in the bedroom walls of eight year old girls and the murals on the sides of the vans driven by registered sex offenders. But I digress. The point is counting unicorns is a poor way to measure the health of a startup ecosystem, and an incredibly stupid way to measure innovation. And yet, this seems to be the one metric that everyone understands. People like big numbers. They make great headlines, but it's not an indicator of innovation. Think of it this way there were no pre IPO unicorns at all before 2009, and now there are about 300 of them. Does that mean that we are hundreds of times more innovative now than we were during the PC or dot com investment booms? No, of course not. The rise of the unicorns has more to do with changes to the tax and securities laws than with innovation, but that's a topic for another day. However, it's undeniably true that any healthy startup ecosystem should eventually generate high value companies and substantial economic activity. The important thing to realize when one is counting unicorns, however, is that the unicorn count is a trailing indicator. 
not a leading one. Unicorns are a backward-looking metric. They tell us what has already happened rather than what's going to happen. But what is about to happen is far more interesting. And that's what you and I are here to talk about. Now, new products and new technology get our attention. But product innovation rarely creates billion-dollar startups. It, it happens, of course. But most truly transformative startups are those that have innovative business models. Google, Uber, iTunes, Facebook, and Airbnb all became wildly successful not because they have great technology, but because they defined new business models. They changed how people paid for and how people were paid for services. They changed the way we interacted with the world. And that's what we're going to focus on. Over the past 15 years, the Japanese startup ecosystem has transformed itself from something that basically didn't even exist into something truly world-class. And companies like Preferred Networks and Mujin are doing things in AI and robotics that are way out in front of their global competition. But are they really going to change the way business is done? We don't see a lot of business model innovation in Japan. But in fairness, we don't see a lot of meaningful business model innovation anywhere. Disruptive business models are exceptionally rare, and they tend to be very risky. But when they work... Those are the ones that change the world, or at least change the way we interact with the world. So where is this innovation most likely to come from? I've been discussing this with a lot of well-informed people over the past few years. You'd be amazed at the number of people, both Japanese and foreign, that tell me that Japanese people will always have trouble in business model innovation, because the conformist nature of Japanese society discourages rule-breaking or challenging the way things operate. You and I, of course, understand that this is absolute horseshit. Fifteen years ago, people were using the exact same ridiculous excuse to explain why there were so few Japanese startups. It's nonsense. Business model innovation will happen in Japan. But where will it come from? Well... I'm going to pull out my crystal ball here, because business model innovation is incredibly hard to predict. I can't tell you exactly what the new business model will be. If I could do that, I would go and start that company and become fantastically wealthy. No. However, I think I can tell you where it's going to come from. There is a unique Japanese technology emerging from the nexus of artificial intelligence, robotics, and healthcare, and it's something that could utterly transform our world. Machines are unquestionably becoming smarter, and recently there's a lot of good work being done on creating empathetic machines. But there's a different technology emerging in Japan, one I call evocative machines. The distinction is that Empathetic machines are those that can understand our emotions and empathize with us. Evocative machines are those which evoke emotions in us. Evocative machines are machines that cause us to empathize with them. So why is this useful, let alone disruptive? The whole point of automation is to get things done more simply. 
I don't want to feel sorry for my refrigerator when it breaks down. I don't want to sympathize with my TiVo about how hard it's working when it records my shows. Life is stressful enough. Why spend our emotional energy on inanimate objects? Well, when you focus on a single task, that line of thinking is absolutely correct. But you know something? The Western approach to AI, automation, and robotics is hurting society. It's grinding us down without us even realizing it. And Japan's newly emerging evocative machines are the solution to this problem that we haven't consciously realized we have yet. And it's going to change the world. The history of industrialization and modern prosperity is very much the history of automation. We don't want to walk past an ATM, stand in line, and talk to a bank teller in order to make a deposit. Today, we are all perfectly capable of operating our own elevators and pumping our own gas. And 10 years from now, we'll all have gotten used to this self-checkout and self-bagging at grocery stores. Or maybe we'll skip the stores entirely and just order our groceries online or with an app. Automation makes us all more efficient. It lets us do more with less. But you know, we also lose something. And what we lose is important. I don't mind buying things from vending machines in Japan or using self-checkout in the U.S. Adding people into the mix slows down the transaction and jacks up the price. Hey, and Amazon is even testing supermarkets where there will be no human staff to interact with customers at all. You go in, take what you need from the shelves, and the items are automatically charged to your account and managed on your cell phone. And that's awesome. I mean... It's mostly awesome. The thing is, we humans are deeply social creatures. It's not that any one interaction with a clerk or retail staff or coworker or ticket agent really means anything to us. But collectively, all those little human interactions mean a lot. The future envisioned by Silicon Valley is one where we work gig economy jobs, conduct most of our social life online where we can be properly segmented and marketed to, and where our purchases can be made friction-free at the tap of a button. It's a future where inefficient human interaction is kept to an absolute minimum, and we can all get on with the task at hand. But you know something? That's not going to happen that would break us as human beings. There is a hopelessly misguided Western notion that what we really want is to be at the center of the universe, that we just want our needs to be catered to more quickly and more completely. Instant gratification is not quick enough. We want to have our desires fulfilled before we even consciously realize that we have them. We just need to keep running on our hedonic treadmills, and of course we'll be happy eventually. And if we're not happy right now, well, that just means we need to run a little harder and a little faster. It's nonsense. After our basic needs are met, even the most obsequious, fawning robot servants who can read our emotions are not going to make us happy. We won't survive the psychological strain of knowing that we are the bottleneck in every interaction. 
understanding that whatever transaction we're trying to complete right now has been fully optimized and that we are the only thing slowing it down. Always being the weakest link. Always aware that we're holding things up, that we are the source of friction and that the rest of the world is waiting for us to just finish our damn business and move the hell on. We are not built for that kind of social stress. It would break us as a society. In fact, there are plenty of psychologists and social scientists who say it's already breaking us. So what's the answer? The Luddite solution of moving backwards and undoing automation or slowing it down won't work. Not in the long run. Humans are expensive, and capitalism demands that we increase efficiency by using fewer and fewer people in any given transaction. And this pushes us relentlessly towards automation. And that's a good thing. It improves the overall economic well-being of society. Trying to fight this trend directly would be just as futile as when the original Luddites went around smashing looms in the 1800s. The rational benefits from automation are overwhelming. So what we need is something to soften the emotional blow. That solution is evocative machines. The solution is machines that can make us care about them. It's not immediately obvious why this is so. The idea first struck me during a discussion with my friend Shunsuke Aoki, who is a mad scientist and founder of Yukai Engineering. We were discussing the obstacles facing robotics and healthcare, and he mentioned that he thought we would someday interact with robots in the same way we interact with our pets. Understanding intellectually that they're not human, that they don't have human emotions, but treating them as if they did. The future is in machines that allow and even encourage us to form emotional bonds with them. Think about it. Many people buy a pet when they're lonely, and it works. However, when we buy a pet, when we get a dog or a cat... It's not because we want to have something to love and care about us. No, we buy pets so that we have something to care for, to have something to love. More than almost anything else, we all need something to love. Now, I'm not talking about cute robots like the Ibo, Sony's Robot Dog, or SoftBank's Pepper, or Yukai's Boko, or even the Jetsons' Rosie. It's not about making robots that look or act human or pet-like. It's about giving us a new reason to interact with the machines. I mean, making ATMs more efficient or user-friendly is fine. But imagine how much more enjoyable life would be if we looked forward to using the ATM, not because it quickly facilitated a necessary transaction, but simply because we like the ATM. We just liked it for what it was, and we enjoyed spending a little bit of time with it. Sure, each transaction would be a little less efficient, but so what? We don't really need more efficiency in our lives. I mean, think about anything you choose to do for its own sake. Something you do simply because you enjoy it. Travel, writing, fishing, watching movies, eating out, drinking wine... Uh, spending time with friends, anything at all. No matter what it is, 
you never try to do it in the most efficient way possible. Modern economies have long since moved from industrial economies to service economies and are now transitioning to experience-based economies. Major brands spend billions of marketing dollars every year to try to associate their brand with positive feelings. Imagine if, for example, Toyota, instead of trying to convince you that their car was fast or reliable or fuel-efficient, they developed a car that you simply enjoyed driving and you cared about. Again, not because of what you got out of it, but simply because you liked your particular car and enjoyed being with it, just for what it is. Evocative Machines is not a branding gimmick or a tactic for short-term competitive advantage. It's a necessary shift that we are going to have to go through, a technology that is needed to allow increasing levels of automation, but enough emotional connection to make sure that we stay sane and that society holds together. If you want to keep an eye out for an early adopter, watch the healthcare industry. The entire developed world is facing an aging population, increasing healthcare costs, and a shortage of healthcare professionals. The only way to make this work is via increased automation and efficiency. But the only way automation will take hold in this environment, where emotional connection is so important, is if we actually like the machines we are working with. But healthcare is just the beginning. Evocative machines, machines that we form an emotional bond with, will change the way we interact with the entire world. Japan is far ahead of the rest of the world in evocative machines, even though they don't call it that yet, even though it's not yet a formal discipline. In fact, you see this attitude in fiction. In Japanese stories, robots are almost always helpful and a force for good. We have Doraemon and Astro Boy, and even Mechagodzilla wasn't even all that bad. In the West, however... From Frankenstein to Metropolis to the Cybermen to Hal to the Terminator, robots are almost universally evil. Something to be controlled, not cared for. Or you can compare the cloyingly cute creations like SoftBank's Pepper to the nightmare-inducing robots from Boston Dynamics, and you'll get a pretty good idea of how far ahead Japan is on the evocative's machine path. In fact, Amazon recently almost discovered the importance of evocative machines. A growing number of parents were concerned about how Alexa was affecting their children. It seems that by answering every question posted, and by putting up with whatever verbal abuse the kids hurled at it, Alexa was teaching an entire generation of children to be a bunch of little assholes. Amazon responded by adding an optional polite mode, which requires children to say please and thank you, in order for Alexa to work. That's great. It will not only reinforce good manners, but in the long run, it will make the children's interaction with Alexa more enjoyable and productive. The only mistake Amazon made was that this setting should not have been optional. Adults would also find Alexa more enjoyable if she reacted more like a living being. If we were rude to Alexa, she should pout and refuse to answer our questions until we apologized, and until she believes we're sincere and will treat her with more respect in the future. Yes, 
that would be far less efficient and a little annoying at times. But you know what? It would make us all much happier in the long run. I mean, it's not about the efficiency of the search transactions. The transactions don't make us happy. It's about the relationship. It's about having something that's worth caring for. Japan gets this, and you see it in the way people interact with machines here. You'll never see people kicking a vending machine. Perhaps it's the concept of kami. Traditional Japanese belief holds that all things have kami, or spirit. Books, buildings, rivers, trees, pencils, computers, everything has some intrinsic spiritual essence to it, and it deserves to be treated and respected accordingly. It's a theme that appears consistently in everything from ancient Japanese folk tales to modern anime. But the idea is universal. We are all willing to accept and care for machines when we're given the right opportunity. We are all not only capable of forming positive emotional bonds with machines, but we actually want to do so. Perhaps a trivial but convincing example of this was the Tamagotchi craze from about 20 years ago. Over 75 million of those little Tamagotchi eggs have been sold, and literally all they did was make their owners care about a machine. Tens of millions of people have spent billions of hours interacting with a little machine that offered the users absolutely nothing except the chance to care about something, to form an emotional bond. This is the future. Evocative machines are the key to opening up a massive new wave of automation in every industry. It's going to come from Japan first, and it's going to change the world. If you'd like to talk about some of these ideas and continue the conversation, drop by DisruptingJapan.com or come by our Facebook or LinkedIn groups. A quick Google search for Disrupting Japan will take you right to us. And when you get the chance, please leave us an honest review on iTunes. It's really the best way you can help us get the word out and support the show. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.